Luke chapter 16 this morning, and uh, our text is uh, the last portion of that from verse 19 through verse 31. While you're turning there, Luke 16, 19 to 31, several years ago, many years ago, before we had kids, uh, we went to a a concert, and uh, we were looking forward to the concert. It was a a very well-known violinist and uh, who was world-renowned for what he had had done and how he played and uh, the concert was in uh, Kings Park up there so it was going to be a beautiful environment a nice summer evening and we were looking forward to to spending that night out and hearing the music and enjoying the evening and uh, we went and the the music was great but uh, we came away vastly disappointed terribly disappointed because the musician uh, the violinist who was there to perform and do all that had such a foul mouth, and just through the night, just uh, every time he spoke, it was just awful. And so the beauty of the music and the enjoyment of the evening, we came away terribly disappointed because of the way it went. So all that expectation, the joy we had of, of wanting to go, uh, turned out to be something entirely different, not what we had expected at all. And in part, That little story tells us a little bit about what Jesus is going to teach us here in Luke 16. We come here today to one of the most uh, familiar passages, perhaps one of the most uh, familiar things Jesus has has said amongst those things. And as we come here and we look at it, we'll read through it in just a moment. uh, It is a passage about expectations and assumptions. Uh, what we think may happen, what we hope will happen, or what we expect may happen. It is, as we say, a familiar passage, but nevertheless, it's a terrifying passage. Let's read through it together as you have your Bibles open there to Luke chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 19. Jesus says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted. And you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, and it's truth, it's terrifying truth, we pray that your spirit would do its work within us, opening our eyes to see, to understand, and motivate us to respond in whatever way is necessary. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage comes, of course, as part of a larger portion where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he's talking to them about their hypocrisy and about their greed and how they have twisted God's word for their own gain. To be what what they want it to be so that they can gain and profit from it. And this is part of Jesus showing that, showing how they have twisted that. And that what they expect based on their assumptions is not necessarily what will happen. And so he tells them the truth about what happens. Now, the Bible teaches and is very clear in its teaching throughout from beginning to end that there are for all people two great destinies after we leave this world. After death, there are two great destinies the Bible teaches. Today, my intent is not to prove whether they exist. The Bible says they do. And so we're going to build on that that what the Bible says here about the two great destinies is indeed true and see what Jesus says about those two great destinies, that there is one which is eternal life, joy, and peace in heaven with God and that there is another which is eternal torment and condemnation in a place we call hell. Many people don't believe that hell exists There are even many Christians now today which don't believe hell exists. And most assume that if, in fact, hell does exist, they won't be in it. That's how most people understand it. Yeah, if we want to believe that hell exists, I'm almost certain that I will not be there. So let's examine what Jesus says today, and he teaches about eternity and hell As we read through this, it is uh, here most probably a parable. In the past, I have have looked at this and seen it as being a real story, which Jesus tells. I lean more these days to see it as a parable. Either way, if we treat the text with the respect that it deserves, whether you think this is the reality of what Jesus is telling about two people he actually knows, or if it's a parable, if we treat it with the respect by looking at the whole of Scripture, the truths here remain the same. And so we want to see what Jesus tells us here and what he's teaching us in these words about uh, eternity and about where we will go. So our overall question today is, as I have on the screen there, which we go through, the overall question we're looking at today, which Jesus poses here, is do you know, that is, do you know where you will spend eternity? So I'm going to pose this around three smaller questions, which we'll examine as we look here. And the first is this. Are you expecting to be in heaven? Are you expecting to be in heaven? The first portion of our text begins here as Jesus sets up the scene and shows us what's going on. He says in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. 
Now, as Jesus begins this, and he sets up this, this scene for us to teach us what he needs us to understand, what he does here at the beginning is he's challenging their assumptions. So they have certain assumptions about what God accepts, what he doesn't accept, what they believe makes them worthy of heaven and what they don't. And here, as Jesus sets this up, he's setting it up to challenge their assumptions about what God thinks and what God finds pleasing and acceptable for heaven. There's a good reason here at the beginning that Jesus gives the description that he does of the Pharisees in verse 19. Verse 19 is very clearly about the Pharisees and the way he's described it. And the way that he sets this up and the reason he sets this up is because their assumption, at least one of the assumptions, is this, that good things in life mean God's blessing. So if your life is good and you are wealthy and profitable and prosperous in your life and things are going well, that means God's blessing. That was one of the great assumptions of the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus describes it this way. So he describes a rich man, one who is excessively rich. So he's gone beyond. He's gone to the top. He says he wears purple, which would uh, say royalty, but not necessarily royalty, but one who thinks that they are royalty and deserves to be grand and great. Wears the finest of clothes and, and doesn't just eat, uh, eat well sometimes or have a banquet sometimes, but says fares sumptuously every day, that every day is a grand feast. They have all they could want. Everything is there. So to the Pharisees, as they hear this description of this man, this is clearly someone who is blessed by God. He has everything that he should have. He is wealthy. He is prosperous. And he does well. So he must be favored by God. To the Pharisees at the time considered themselves to be the standard of godliness. What they did and how they acted was was right. Their wealth and their prestige were signs of God's pleasure on them. And so it was assumed that because of the life they had, because of their expectation that God was blessing them the way they were, it was assumed then that they would go to heaven. And they did believe in a heaven. The, this description here of the words Abraham's bosom was the Old Testament, the Jewish way of describing heaven. This, it was at the side of Abraham who was the great father of, of Israel. So it was assumed that they would go to heaven because they assumed God's blessing. But then he gives us the second part of these assumptions when he describes for us this man named Lazarus. And while the first assumption that he brings up here is that good things in life mean God's blessing, the flip side of that, which we see in Lazarus, is that suffering in this life means God's judgment. That if we endure trouble, that if our life is full of suffering, then we are under the judgment of God. And so just like he has given us this excessively wealthy man to show us that uh, the, the way that they think that, that God blesses like this, he has given us the other extreme here with, with Lazarus in one who is genuinely considered to be worthless in society. This man has absolutely no value. Disease in this time was considered to be judgment from God. And so this man, he is he's not just diseased, but he is covered in sores. He is full of disease. So to the Pharisees, as they listen here, they're thinking, ah, the rich man, he is rich because God blesses him. And Lazarus, who is here, who is completely devastated by, by disease and trouble, he clearly deserves it. He deserves the trouble he's in. This is God's judgment. 
He deserves what he gets. He is the lowest of the low. No one wanted him. No one cared about him. In fact, in verse 20, where it says he was laid at his gate, the the word laid really doesn't give the thing. It means to cast, to throw down. So when Jesus is describing this, he says, here's Lazarus who has just been cast at the gate of the rich man. He has no one that cares for him. Nobody wants to be part of his life. Nobody is concerned about him. They've taken him wherever his relatives may be or whoever. They've thrown him at the gate of this rich man, hoping that he'll get what he needs. He's out of their mind. He's out of their life. And the rich man doesn't have to think about him. He can get whatever scraps he gets. So this man, Lazarus, is genuinely the outcast of society. And to the Pharisees and the people listening, he is there because he deserves it. That's the assumptions that are being made here as Jesus sets up this whole thing. The whole system is completely messed up. Now, the point that Jesus does here that we we don't want to miss is while Jesus is challenging their assumptions, by implication, as we, we think through this, Jesus is also challenging our assumptions. He is challenging our assumptions about what it means to be blessed by God or to be cursed by God, what it means to be able to be one who can say, I will go to heaven or I won't go to heaven. One of the assumptions that so many of us, perhaps most of our society makes, is that a good life will be enough, which isn't really all that different to the Pharisees' assumption that wealth and riches and pleasure and goodness are God's blessing. But we have this assumption that a good life will be enough for God to let us into heaven. So Jesus here, as he tells this story, as he lays out this this picture, he is not challenging them because uh, about rich or poor. It doesn't have to do with the wealth or the poverty of one or the other. It has to do with our assumptions about the wealth or the poverty. And so as we consider what he's saying here for ourselves, we're also thinking, what does it mean about our assumptions about what makes us acceptable to God or not? What are our assumptions about what is godly or not? Our assumptions are usually based on our own standard. We say, well, a good life will be enough. And so we determine what a good life will be by our own standard. And then as long as we hit our own standard, we think that will be enough for God. And so one way or another, we think that a good life, whatever that may mean, is going to be enough. Maybe we see wealth as a blessing. And certainly in our Western society and amongst much of of what is called Christianity, that is certainly one of the things that is preached and told around, that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Or maybe we assume if you live good, you're okay. Again, that determination of whether you're living good or not is up for debate on depending on who you ask. Or maybe we're assuming that if God says he is a God of love, he would not condemn anyone. Surely a God of love would not have anything like hell. So maybe that's our assumption, that clearly in the end, God will not send anyone to hell because that's clearly not the loving or right thing to do. So we have to ask ourselves a question. If I died today, why should God let me into heaven? 
you don't hear it so much anymore, but there used to be a, a, a way that was taught about how to, how to speak to others about salvation and, and introduce or, or talk to them. And one of them would be, if you were to die today and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you answer? So what would you answer to that question? If you had the opportunity to stand before God and God said, why should I let you in? What would be the reason that you say to God, this is why you should let me in to heaven? Maybe it's one of the assumptions we make about what God thinks or should think. Is it What is it that we are assuming about God and about heaven? So while one of the assumptions that we make, at least in broad terms, is that a good life will be enough, one of the other assumptions we make, which really is similar to what we had before, is that God won't judge good people. We assume that God won't judge good people. If I do right things, if I try to live a good life, God won't judge that. If I'm trying to do good or trying to live good, but who decides what's good? And what level of good? Makes it acceptable. If I steal from others, is that bad? But then if I tell you the reason I stole was so that I could give to the poor, does that make me good? If I lie to you to save you from feeling hurt, does that make me good? Or because I lied, is it bad? Where's the standard? How are we going to determine which is a good life and which isn't. Their assumption is that God blessed because their life was good, so God won't judge them. But God judged Lazarus because he'd sinned and he deserved it. In John chapter 9, Jesus, uh, we find Jesus in another circumstance where this same thing comes up says in John chapter 9 and verse 1, says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So he was born blind, clearly as it says. Now here is where this assumption comes in. So it says in verse 2, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? See the assumption? Here's a man who was born blind. If he was born blind, the reason he must be born blind is because someone sinned. Did he sin and so he was blind? Or was it his parents who sinned and so he's blind? And so this is God's judgment. Jesus will go on. You can read through it and he heals the man blind. He says, neither of those are true. The man isn't blind because someone sinned. The man is blind so that I can show you my glory. So the assumptions they're making are this. Good life, God loves you. Troubled life, God judges you. And most of our world lives under the same assumptions. Oh, sure, it may look a little different than the Pharisees and the Jews at the time, but the assumptions remain the same. So are you expecting to be in heaven when you die? Why? Why? Which leads us to our second question we're going to ask this morning. The first question is, are you expecting to be in heaven? The second question is, what if you don't end up where you expected? What if when you die, you don't end up where you thought you would? 
Verse 22 of our text, it says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he, carried, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. What if you don't end up where you expect? See, the story then takes a quick turn, and Jesus brings a tragic reversal to our assumptions. So at the beginning... And he's, he's showing the assumptions. The assumptions are built into their mind. The Pharisees genuinely think that they are going to be in heaven. And so when he describes this rich man who has everything and then he dies and they find him in hell, this is a tragic reversal of their assumptions. This is not what they think should happen. Why should the rich man end up in hell and Lazarus, the outcast, end up in heaven? The reason Jesus will get to as we go through, but there is a tragic reversal of our assumptions. And the reversal finds Lazarus, his life is filled. While it was empty while on earth in this life, when it comes to the afterlife, his life is filled. Both men die, we're told here. But consider the description of Lazarus's death. It speaks of the death. It says, so it was the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Love that description of the way he describes it. He died and, and he wasn't just left there, but he was carried away by the angels. I remember the day that, that Hudson died. And as I was trying to explain to our daughters at the time of what, what happened, that's how I described it. I said, God thought it was time, and so he sent his angels, and he carried Hudson to heaven. It's a beautiful way to picture what God does with his people. Now, it, maybe it happens. We don't know if this is literal and that this is actually what happens, because it doesn't speak like this in other parts of the scripture. But nevertheless, this is how Jesus describes it. And there's a reason he describes it like this. Jesus uses this to show that there is a love that there is a care, that there is a concern for God, for Lazarus, when he died. There is care and love. The assumption was that God didn't care about Lazarus. That's why his life was so pitiful. But when Jesus describes his leaving this life, he describes it with great care. Lazarus's life was difficult, but he found eternal comfort. You read through it and you find at least twice there it speaks of Lazarus being in comfort. 
verse 23. It says, uh, uh, and being in torment in Hades, but he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. That is at the side of Abraham in his care. In verse 25, it says, you're in torments, but Lazarus is in comfort. It's also interesting that in this this story, and one of the reasons that causes whether to, to think is it real or is it a parable is because Lazarus is named. Jesus doesn't use names in most of his parables, but here he uses one name. And if it's a parable, here is what makes the use of the name Lazarus so wonderful. Why he would use the name. Because God knows his own by name. In John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus talks and speaks of himself as being the great shepherd. The shepherd of his people. And it says to him, that is to Jesus, the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. So in this story that Jesus tells, the rich man who assumes he is loved by God is not named. But the poor man who is assumed to be outcast from God is the one whom God calls by name. His genuine care. Though life may be difficult, God doesn't leave his own. In times of difficulty, we often often call on Psalm 23. In verse 4, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We don't know why Lazarus suffered in this life. No description is given, no description is necessary. What we do know is he didn't suffer because God didn't care. Clearly, God cared. At death, his life is filled with abundant, eternal Goodness. And so in this reversal, we find Lazarus has his life filled. But the rich man's life is emptied. The rich man's life is emptied. He assumed heaven. He lived for himself without concern. He spent his life with this beggar Lazarus at his gate and didn't care for him one One portion didn't meet his needs, didn't do what he needed. He didn't care at all. He lived his life entirely for himself and assumed that his wealth and his prosperity and all of his assumptions about what makes someone good was, in fact, going to get him to heaven, and it didn't. And in contrast to the way that Lazarus is described as dying and being carried away by the angels, it says of the rich man simply this, he died and was buried. Oh, sure, he was rich and well-renowned, so we would certainly expect that his funeral would have been, been uh, full of pomp and circumstance and probably attended by many and heard about through all the regions because he was so well-known and so well-off, but none of that mattered. None of it mattered at all. His reward was what he had in life. So while we see here the tragic reversal of our assumptions, what we also see is the tragic consequences of our assumptions. 
Listen, hell does exist. Hell does exist. Jesus is very clear about our destination after our life here. Hades, as it's described here, which is the Greek word just left untranslated because it uses a couple of different words throughout the Bible to describe hell, which refer to various different aspects of it. But Hades, as it's used by Jesus and through the New Testament, is the place of the condemned. It's where the condemned end up. Now, whether this is a parable or not, what is absolutely true and what Jesus is teaching here is that hell is real. In fact, Jesus speaks more about hell than any other person in the Bible. You can see it all through the Gospels, how often Jesus speaks about hell. In fact, he speaks about hell more often than he speaks about heaven. Its description is horrific. As we see in the description that Jesus gives here as he speaks, it is a place of everlasting torment. It doesn't end. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Jesus says, as he's describing for us and talking to us about the judgment at the end and how he will divide the righteous from the unrighteous and then push them to where they belong in eternity. He says, then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a place of everlasting torment. It's a place of anguish and regret. We see that in the way Jesus describes the rich man. He is there in torment and anguish, and all he wants is to get out. He just wants just a little bit of relief. It is a place of constant torment. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, and, I, and we'll cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place from which there is no way out. Verse 23, it says, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So as Jesus tells the story, he tells it in a way because he wants us to understand what's behind the curtain a little bit. And so he describes how, uh, a point where, where the rich man can see Lazarus. And then later in verse 26, he says, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. The picture here, and what Jesus is teaching here, is not that heaven and hell are two compartments and you can see across. So don't get that picture. That's not what Jesus is describing. We don't see that anywhere else. In scripture, what is he saying? He's simply saying that if you want to get from this side to that side, there is no way. And if you want to go from this side to that side, for whoever knows, or do you be cast out? He says, there is no way. If after this life you find yourself by God's grace in heaven, you are there for all eternity. And there is no way to lose your way from here down to Hades. If, after this life ends, you find yourself in Hades, there is no way to make your place from here to heaven. It is eternal. There is no way to cross the gap. That's simply what he's describing there. Revelation chapter 20, 
describes for us the great end. And he says at the end that, that all those who don't believe in Jesus are cast into hell. And then hell is cast into the great lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. Everywhere in scripture where uh, hell is described, it is described in horrible, tormentous ways. It is a place of eternal judgment. Jesus doesn't talk so much about hell because he enjoys it. It wasn't created for God's dark pleasure. It is not something he gains great joy out of. As we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It would appear that hell was initially created for Satan and the angels that followed him in rebellion against God. And the people that end up there in hell end up there because we follow the devil in his rebellion. It is not a place God takes joy in. Hell is about justice. Hell is about doing what is right, what is genuinely good. Hell is what it is because God is who he is. God is perfect and holy and righteous. He is without blemish, without sin, without spot. He is the perfection of all perfections. And because he is the perfection of all perfections, that is because he is completely holy, completely set apart from everything that is unholy. Hell is the absolute must, the only way that anything outside of perfection can be taken care of. We go to hell because we rebel against God. Most don't have an issue with hell for people like Hitler. We just don't like being told that we deserve hell too. But that's the truth. But on the other hand, hell is the context which reminds us just how amazing God's grace is. So our third question this morning is how can you know what to expect? How can you know what to expect when this life ends? Our text ends with this in verse 27. It says, then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. That is, send Lazarus. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. How can you know what to expect? Firstly, don't base your future on your assumptions. Don't base your future on your assumptions. Listen, as Jesus describes here, no one is coming back to warn you. No one's coming back to warn you what is on the other side. The rich man wants any way out. He wants any relief he can possibly find. The tragedy that we see, as Jesus describes for us here, is that there is no relief. Ever. 
No relief at all, ever. Your Christians sometimes say to people who've lost loved ones that don't know Jesus Christ, or maybe they do, in speaking to those who need to know, they say they would want you to know about God's salvation. They would want you to know about eternity. And here illustrates that. This man in hell wants his relatives to know, don't come here. You don't want to be here. He wants others to know and escape this fate. But still, he misses the point. Still, he clings to his traditions and his assumptions in his cries. When he cries for, for God to, or, or Abraham, who here is representing the one who, who over heaven, when he calls out and says, send someone back, the answer God gives is no. I'm not sending anyone back. I'm not raising anybody from the dead to go back for you. I'm not sending a spirit. I'm not sending anybody back. That's it. Despite what people want you to believe, no one is going to hell and coming back to tell us what happened. These heaven tourism stories and these hell tourism stories, they don't exist. They're not true. No one is coming back from heaven to tell you about it. No one is coming back from hell to tell you about it. Paul went to heaven, told no one about it. No one is coming back. If they did, you still wouldn't believe. Even if somebody did come back from the dead and tell you what's on the other side, we still would not believe. We want to believe, like, like Ebenezer Scrooge, that if some spirit came to us and showed us the error of our ways, that we would follow and we would, we would obey and we would listen and our lives would change. But the reality is life doesn't work like that. Life is not a Christmas carol. Jesus tells us at the end of the text, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Now consider the truth of his statement. Let's take for a moment a real Lazarus who rose from the dead. You can read about his story in John chapter 11. Lazarus dies. Jesus raises him from the dead to his glory and how do the Pharisees respond to that? Let's kill Lazarus. Right? That didn't change what they believed about Jesus. All it did was make them angrier at Jesus. Or what about when Jesus himself rose from the dead? All they did was come up with conspiracy theories. The disciples must have taken him. Or they put him in the wrong tomb. Something else happened. Even though people have seen him all around, it's not true. So if we're living our lives hoping that somebody's going to come back and tell us the reality of what's on the other side, you're wasting your time. We still wouldn't believe. God raised from the dead. We still didn't believe. So the answer is not in our assumptions, 
And it's not in our empty hopes that someone will come back to us and tell us what the truth is. Jesus tells us what the answer is. Listen to his word. That's what he says the answer is. They have Moses and the prophets. This, they have what I have said. They have the word of God. And so do we. The answer is not in signs. The answer is not in wonders. The answer is not in somehow being able to go and come back. The answer is not in God doing something uh, that we might think is incredible or basing our assumptions on what we do. The answer is listen to what God has already said. God has already told us what's on the other side. And God has already told us how we can know how we will be on one side or the other. Everything we need to know about heaven and hell is already revealed. There is nothing else we need to know. And no trick is going to help that. God has already told us. He's given us his word. And the truth is God has never hidden any of this. From the very beginning, God warned us. If we sin, if we rebel, if we disobey him, we will die. That was the very first warning he gave us at the very beginning to keep us from sin. If you disobey, you will die. And that message was repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. And Jesus is simply repeating the same message that we've had for millennia. The same message which the New Testament writers continue to speak and to speak and to speak. We know what is ahead. And all along, God has proclaimed how to avoid that. It is not his fault that we ignore his word. It is not his fault that we ignore his warnings. It is not his fault that we end up in hell. Absolutely everything you need to know about heaven and hell is in the Bible. And what is it that is there? He tells us we're told to believe Jesus. That's it. Believe Jesus. Believe God when he tells us that we're sinners. That he is the perfect standard. And it doesn't matter what I assume to be the standard. And it doesn't matter what standard I want to make up or what I want to think is a good life or a blessed life. It does not matter what I think. The only thing that matters is what God sets as the standard. If I do not reach that standard, I have not reached the only standard that matters. He is perfect, and I have not reached it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Believe God when he says that because he is perfectly pure, he must punish sin. Believe God when he says that he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. 
that Jesus came to die in our place. He died to bear sin so that I didn't have to die for my sin. And then by faith, accept that Jesus is Savior from sin and follow him. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know where you will go when you die? How do you know? Do you know for sure? Or are you assuming? The Bible tells you that you can know for sure. You can know beyond doubt where you will end in eternity. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, that is, go to eternity in hell, but have everlasting life. That's how you know. If I have believed Jesus saves me from my sin. I believe that he died in my place for me. My life follows him. I know for sure heaven, eternal life. And it's not based on what I think is a good thing. It's not based on what anybody else thinks is a good thing. It's based purely on the fact that Jesus died in grace for me and for you. Believer, let this truth of the reality of hell be a motivator. Second Corinthians, Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing what is to come, knowing what is the judgment of God on sin, because that's what must be. Speak the gospel. This is how we know. Tell people what God says in his word. So this morning I implore you. If you don't know that your sins are forgiven. If you don't know that you will go to heaven. Find out today. Ask me more if you need to know more. I'll show you the way to Jesus. Or ask someone next to you, say, can you show me Jesus? And let us help you know how you can know for sure, not guesses, not assumptions, but know for sure that you will not end up in eternal punishment, but eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for our opportunity this morning. It is a, a difficult and somber opportunity to be sure, dear God. Not one that brings joy to speak on hell, but it doesn't bring us joy because we know it doesn't bring you joy. We understand, dear God, that it is right. It doesn't make it easy to believe 
and we wrestle with it often. But dear God, let us be clear in our message of the gospel that we would proclaim what you have said. Dear God, we pray that you would open hearts and minds to hear that we might be able to break through the assumptions and see truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.